Remember that us going live talking about things like how I'm in the captain's chair and you're Uhura and like, oh, I can't think of the Russian guy again. Like all mixed into one and I just have to say engage and then we go. And the trick is like if we don't talk our way into this into the show and we try to do the opening right away, it always cuts it off, right? So now I think I can assume that we're live by this point and I can say, hey, internet, he is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal and he's not going to be long now anyway. The water... Seals it. The food feeds it. This is Christianity. You found the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill with Jonathan and Meredith. Stick around. No rush, no worry. He is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal now, and he won't be long anyway. It's the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill with Jonathan and Meredith in a new location. I will say that if your garage is ever falling apart, you should call Al Menting. Uh, he and Rockford will take care of your garage floor. I got to tell you, they got it done for me this week. But it also meant that everything that I had going on in that little workshop of mine had to get moved within about a 48-hour period in order to stop the pockmarked destruction of my garage floor by the salt. Yes, the salt, which we do in many of these northern cities, do we not? Uh, in any case, in any case. So here we are in a new location. Uh, Meredith and I in the, what, what is this room called in, in our fantasy land? Charlotte's Web. In Charlotte's Web. I have, I have been captured by Charlotte down in her web. Um, what do you think? of your sewing space now that it has been uh <laughs> retrofitted oh it's it's pretty manly now it looks good manly mm-hmm. was that yeah our viewers can't see the bunch of roses hanging <laughs> to your both right sides, both sides yeah, that's true. right there i like that i like that well there's certainly more i could have done and might do but we'll see because there still are plans here locally for an actual studio development at some point um but for now uh, if you did decide to drive here this morning, you're already on the way and you happen to be listening, go ahead and, and tailgate in the in the driveway anyway, and we'll, we'll meet you afterwards. Um, not necessarily that I know anyone's going to be here, but that did happen a couple weeks ago. Wouldn't want anyone to be disappointed. Um, and uh, so we are here. And plenty to talk about. Lots of questions from you, both about the Bible, about emotions, about screens, uh, about uh, torments and evil things, about the world we live in and walking as a Christian, about how to stand apart from those who say, don't go this way when you know that's the way you should po- you're supposed to go. Um, and uh, so last week, I said how I always open this thing with a monologue. And now Meredith's here, and so I didn't. And then we kind of chatted, and someone said, to me in a comment somewhere, uh, you know, I, I really like your monologues. And so the trick for me now is this. I would like to stop being like gaslit and part of the gaslighting by always coming on and being like, well, this, that, this, that, and they there, right? And so I'm not sure how to do that, right? I'm not sure how to like stop saying, well, Biden said this, and so therefore let's talk about Jesus. And instead just come on and be like, so, you know, hey, what's up? This is reality always, This is reality always. If there's any value to what Mad Christianity has been doing recently, it is that it's been going back to the font. Ad fontes, to the source. Pushing you to the source, to the font. That's what the Psalter and those prayers and the Psalms, the Sons of Solomon concept and the Proverbs, it's all about to the font, right? To the original source, to the stream that is pure, from which we know the Holy Spirit must flow. In a time such as Babylon, but see, the, thing, the, the idea that we're in a new thing, that Babylon's a new thing, that it just kind of got bad recently, that's a lie. That's the lie. Whatever you were thinking before 2020 went and knocked you upside the head, you were blind to how you were being led by the nose to the zeitgeist of the present age which had convinced you to gradually give up conviction in the thing that you know is your first love. Yeah. 
And thanks be to Jesus, he sent those fiery serpents into the camp, and now the snake on the pole is lifted up high again before the world. And it's not as though you and I were not Christians before this, right? We can't say that those who were the Israelites wandering in the desert when they grumbled were therefore not Christians just because they got punished and some fell. Yeah? Although some fell. Uh, and so this is just it. Do you want to pass Christianity on to future generations? Then it's not going to be by a program. Do you want to, go, want to have the faith that you believe be the fa- faith that your children believe? It's not going to be by a catchphrase or a set of quirky words or something we discover and just do this time so it works now. It's certainly not going to be by offloading the teaching of your children to people who are not you. Uh, it's going to happen because you yourself are in the scriptures as your only hope. And when you yourself are in the scriptures as your only hope, Christianity doesn't just find you, it exudes from you. It gradually becomes all that you know. Now, again, if you're going to like read three verses of the Bible a day and then go read fiction book upon fiction book and then watch a movie and then go do this other thing in here and this is, yeah, you're, you're probably not going to feel that impact real hard. Again, Sons of Solomon concept is to move your Christianity into you throughout the day by discipline, right? Not by some sort of grandiose scheme about how I'm going to overcome. No, no, no. Small steps, small wins building toward the future. By discipline, you will gain the wisdom over time to know who your God is and what the pure source is. But to do that, there must be more than, again, like three minutes somewhere or just 15 minutes on Sunday morning while you'd rather be somewhere else. If you wonder why your kids don't like what you believe after that or after all of your attempts to paper it with everything that's not the Bible being read in the home, well, then, yeah, you're going to find all sorts of not not generational faithfulness. You're going to find all sorts of not people natively rising up and saying, oh, how blessed is this place? Instead, you're going to find people struggling. You're going to find people frustrated. You're going to find people confused. Now, I'm not going to say this is any individual's fault, but let me suggest this to you, that the pattern of history biblically revealed is that there are rises and falls of empires that will coincide with this eternal Babylon. It's not eternal, but you know, semi-eternal till judgment day. The languages of mankind are confused and confusing. The decay that happens to your body that puts you into the grave, it's happening to your mouth even as you speak, and you can't control it beyond your own body because what's going on around you, where your language is in its life development, in how much it means what it says, and how much it's in fact a language built for lying, that's not up to you. That's up to the decay state of your civilization. And let me suggest that it has something to do with the currency state of your civilization too. It's not accidental that the Old Testament monetary laws and the Old Testament word laws are are very connected to each other. Good measurement, good scales, honest designations, yeah? And let me suggest again that the English world we're living in has gotten so mixed, so confused, so diabolically twisted inward and upside down on itself that it's very difficult to tell the truth even when you want to because people hear something completely different than what you're trying to say. And so let me suggest to you again that if you want to pass anything about your Christianity forward, It's going to be by going back to what the text actually says and letting that redefine our language for us. You can't have the TV blaring and have grace still mean grace at the end of the day because they're going to change the words on you, right? That's the trick in this whole thing. And so what is this about? It really is about Bible reading. It's that simple. It's that simple. If this show is anything, it's a, you should read your Bible in your home movement and ideally... I put my hand up in the air as a hypocrite. Ideally, it's you and then you with your family, both at different times, (laughs) at different times. Now, 
I'm not going to pretend this is easy. I'm not going to pretend this isn't the Great War. I'm not going to pretend this isn't, in fact, the diabolical assault of torment of the zeitgeist against all of us as a group soul, Christ's body of the church. But I'm going to tell you that many times, let Israel now say, they have afflicted us from our youth and they have never prevailed against us. The body of Christ has never been kept down. Just because they poisoned us over the last two generations with all manner of trickery doesn't mean it's the actual end times for sure. If it is, great, lift up your heads. And if it isn't, then let's dig in because they're going to collapse while Christ's church is going to keep marching on because he is risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal. He's not going to be long now anyway. The water seals it, food feeds it. This is Christianity from the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Show with Jonathan and Meredith. Meredith, good morning. Welcome to the show again. There we go. We got a monologue in today. Any thoughts on that? Any responses? You've been along for this ride the whole time. I mean, how much has our planet, not planet, our house changed this year as a result of 2020's like fallout? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, it's it's kind of gone back a little bit to what you and I had initially thought would be our house and would um, structure what, what the way that we would structure now, our home. F- fill that out when you say what you and I initially thought. What's the initially? You're talking about like as newlyweds when we got married. Yeah. Are you saying I didn't stay on what I said? <laughs> no, it's not that you didn't stay on it. It just. It got a little bit. Um, there was a big breeze blowing. I kind of got a little bit pushed, muddled. right? Yeah, 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 just a little bit. Yeah. How? Feel free um, to say it. I think it's worth saying. Oh, let's see. Well, I think that you. Uh, it's it's easy to, as you're walking along, to get distracted by what the world thinks is important, and um, maybe not just the world, but the world that you're surrounding yourself by. So. Um, when we went to seminary, <clears throat> you became excited by the theology, mm-hmm. by the philosophy behind the theology, um, and that took a little bit of your childlike faith um, away. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm talking about. That's interesting that you, that, that you put it to that. I would agree with you that the scholastic experience at seminary, while incredibly valuable, and I wouldn't trade it for the world because it's kind of like your black belt training for the fight, um, it isn't devotional, even remotely. And so for like four years, they're like, don't go to church and you can't have any spiritual development and then go teach people. And I think a lot of guys come out of that in a very different place than they went into that devotionally. Even though it's very clear, right away they tell you, you must develop a habitus. If you don't have a habitus, you can't even be a pastor. You're not a pastor. You're lying to yourself. And we're like, oh, okay, habitus sounds like Latin. Okay, cool, cool, we're on it, right? And But nobody really helped us do that. Right. And that that was tough. I am going to say that I got lost in a different way. And I have been pondering this one too. The, the great ironies of my life um, – you know, 42 squared not is, is like the, the pinnacle of ironies. And if you don't know what that means, well, you have to find out someday. Um, but the fact that the real place I think I drifted most, not just into like over-scholasticizing, over-professionalizing, non-devotionalizing my faith, the place I started listening to the world most was when I started watching TV again. Mm-hmm. And I had stopped for a while, right? And uh, when I was in Europe, it just kind of wasn't worth my time. I'd go walk or read a book or whatever. Um, and so... You know, that's who you met and married. True. <laughs> but we watched Lost, fourth year at Sam, 
And we never even finished it, right? But, yeah, it got too weird. Yeah, well, they went back to get Lylan. They got off and then they went back. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't want to be lost. But that's just it. I was, I was now kind of hooked on something. The routine. It was a routine. And it was an old routine from childhood, too, of sort of like stimulation medication in order to avoid problems, I think. Um, I'll just leave that with me for the moment. But I got lost, and it wasn't until many years later when it wasn't even TV anymore. Now I'm, you know, I'm through Tim Ferriss, and I'm listening to James Altucher, who's not a bad Bitcoin advisor, I think. Um, and yet, I, ha- I asked this question one point. It's like, here I am listening to a Jewish man, an unbeliever, right? He's not a Christian. And I'm letting him talk to me about how to navigate the present evil age. Now, why is this man my guru? Why am I why am I not reading Solomon mm-hmm. instead? And and from there again I I got lost and and I'm glad to be finding my way again not to claim to have already attained it or any such thing but I press on toward the goal. Um the scholastic question though is a really important one. I oh I wanted to say you know what I don't know if it was the philosophy that caught me as much it was the history. It was the history. Well I oh, I think it's common for us and, and we've talked about this more recently as Lutherans to feel like we have to have the right wordage or um, you can't just say what the Bible says. You have to say what it says and what it means and then have three commentaries to back you up. You know, that it, it kind of becomes stifling a little after a little while. So you don't speak at all over time. So I can see how being surrounded by the men of wisdom at the seminary would have made you feel like, nope, I've got to say it right if I'm going to say it at all. And so you did. You dove into how do you say it right? And that has blessed so many people hmm. over the years. So I'm thankful for that. And yeah, it was it was at that time when we decided to let, um, instead of have devotion around the table and our Bible be our evening together, it was... Um, well, at first it was Netflix DVDs, and then it was Netflix streaming and all the <laughs> oh, things. Oh, those DVDs, and I'd have two of them going so we could always have us. Oh, my goodness, what a world. It's more yeah. stress than it's worth. That's what I got on the other side of it is you think you're entertaining yourself. You're actually just stressing yourself out the whole time. Yeah. Uh, on your comment about talking, though, so yeah, do you have to be Jonathan Fist to speak about Lutheran Christianity to Christians in America without you know, um, a translator? You know, it, is it? Do you have to like specially figure out how to confess the faith, or is it just as simple as saying what the Bible says? Like reading the Bible is saying what the Bible says, and that's where the Lutheran zeitgeist at the present. You know, I'm not talking about our confessions, people. Um, uh, I'm not talking about our dogma, even. I'm talking about how we act, <laughs> uh, how we act, and what we've done is we've convinced ourselves that only pastors and then engineer-like, scholar-like know-it-alls can talk about Jesus. And as a result, we don't talk about Jesus. And then we're like, well, we need more mission. Why don't we do more mission? I got an idea. Let's have a program. See, and, and it's just, no, no, let's, 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 why don't we read the Bible together and see if we're inspired by it <laughs> and let the guy who's the teacher make sure that we walk on the straight path the Bible says and maybe try to do that without having to tell everyone about every bad path there ever was, which tends to be the didactic that I picked up at the seminary that I think I'm most resisting now. It's not that I don't reject all those heresies. I'm just not so it's important to teach them at all. 
I, why? Most people don't even know what they are anymore. Why would we bring them back? You know, it, much more important to just say, well, this is what it says it means and move on. And the people are going to hear that without having to have it be justified against people who are dead and arguing a long time ago. Right. And so I, that's, that's kind of the deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've had enough people reach out to me at some point and be like, you know, Pastor Fisk, I need a video to send somebody about this topic. And it's like, you're no, <laughs> that's not what this is for. Uh, if this is so that you don't have to talk about Christ, then it's an idol and you should turn me off. Uh, instead, this needs to be about how you turn this off and then you read your Bible out loud and then you talk about it sometime, somewhere, right? At the very least, in church in the worship service, when it's on the page, you realize that's what's happening, right? You're being trained to talk about Jesus out loud. Now, if you're not paying attention and yawning or care more about the tune because you don't like it or do like it than about the text, this isn't going to happen. And if you never sing the same songs, if there's no repetition, then you won't be able to memorize it because it'll just come and go. So if, I mean, really, pastors, if it's like a different seven hymns every week forever until you've used all 900 of them, and then you repeat three years later, your people will not love most of it because they never get to know it, right? And so we have a lot of challenges ahead of us. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to condemn anyone. I'm still in the middle of this whole mess. But somehow, somehow, we got to learn to talk again out loud. And there's a lot of hindrances to this. It's not just, say, scholasticism. There's there's a whole zeitgeist that's made us shut up, um, made us afraid to speak, uh, made everything too politically incorrect for anyone but the high priest to be able to say something about it. And um, that's not good. That's not good. That's not good. Good morning. Is that the rabbit? No. 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 It's, it's, a, a, daughter. it's a daughter. Hello. <laughs> Why don't we take our one minute break and come back with your questions, Bible's answers, and some of our nonsense here on the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill. Stick around. All right. So um, you made a style decision this week that uh, <laughs> apparently our children are worried about. You want to talk about that I a little know. bit? Well, first off, I guess the, the lighting is making my face look like I'm sunburned. And then I have these spiffy little glasses on to help keep the, what is it, the blue light out of my eyes because I keep getting migraines after the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are some serious my blue blockers right there. fragile state. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, it. I get it. So, I mean, why do we help? Why do we own this hundred dollar pair of blue blockers? These are a hundred dollars. They were well. They were the. They block every bit of blue light. Like you That's have my, my kids just gave you the cheap one that was fifteen bucks, right? How well did it work? Yeah, it's true. I bought the, that one where first. Are they? These these little ones. The kids are like, these will look much cuter. Put these on. That's what our little they, rabbit. They don't do anything. Was. So I bought that one first, and then our uh, what was it? Jordan Harbinger. One of the pagans I was listening to, what was it? Uh, not Art of Manliness, but it's sort of Art of Charm. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, talked about advertisement and full-on blue blockers. They, they block everything in, yeah. the, in, the, in the screen. So that was back in St. Louis, and this is before I had the, even the full sleep apnea designation. So I was trying to sleep at night, trying to fall asleep. I was watching movies till 11, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, it's like, this is the thing there, right? You want to talk about spending too much money on a pair of glasses you don't need. What was I trying to do? I was trying yeah. to ignore reality is what I was trying to do. Well, uh, it's your drugs. Yeah, right. The TV drugs. Right. So, I mean, I feel kind of scared now. I'm like, wow, that's more expensive than my prescription glasses. <laughs> Wear them. They sat in a drawer for two years. I'm a oh, fool. Yeah. I acknowledge it. Oh, wow. Now, God has given them a use so you don't get a headache. Manning, Uhura's <laughs> awesome station. Engage. Engage. Let's go with question number A. Okay. Let's get me <laughs> out of here. Use the force, Harry. That's what I got to say on that one. 
Use the force here. All right. So this question's from Justin. Greetings, Pastor Fisk. God's blessings to you and all you do with your Mad Christian Network. It has been a joy to listen from the Wii TV days to now, including BHOP. Oh, Brief History of Power. Dr. I got it. What is BHOP? Yeah. Say, talk, say something oh. about that, Meredith. What's Brief History of Power? Tell the listeners. Oh, Brief History of Power with two white guys? Or is the white guys even It's in parentheses, okay. so you have to see it, but I never really <laughs> say it when I'm pitching it to other people. I, <laughs> with the ears, yeah. see what I'm doing there? Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's a, a time when you and a professor from our seminary, a good seminary. The young, the young and esteemed Dr. Kuntz. Yeah. Reverend Dr. Yeah. Um, get together and speak about the history of Lutheranism, the history of what we're seeing today as, as the chaos mm-hmm. unfolds around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you speak about, you know, what, where did... For example, education is one of the series that you yeah. just yeah, yeah. finished a few weeks ago. Yeah. And where did what we see today start? And so you go deep dive yeah, yeah. into the history of it, and then you bring us to the present. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, excellent. that's it. Yeah, a study in the rise and fall of civilizations with a biblical spin, but from mostly non-biblical historical documents, so that if you are an atheist, you could listen, you just won't like our conclusions. But that's all right, that's all right. <laughs> BHOP, he says, thanks for doing it, and it's a joy, along with Old Weed TV, you got to Google that, find out what that is, and then to the present, the question goes and on. Justin continues by saying he's been reading your books and praying the Sons of Solomon Psalms. Fantastic. Getting into the Proverbs and my Bible each day. Rock on. My family, why? and two boys, two years old and 10 months old, nice. have recently moved to the Fort Wayne area from the Pacific Northwest to begin MDiv studies at the seminary in the fall. We kind of know what that's like, It is. Right? It is. It's right. <laughs> and it's good times. For what we said before about scholasticism and some of the challenges, again, uh, bar none, world-class education, and uh, you'll meet some great people. What advice do you have for balancing SEM life and parenting with a growing family? Well, I didn't do it. <sighs> You don't give yourself enough credit. Well, we didn't really have the growing family quite yet either. Not the at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. My wife and I are still planning to have more children. God bless you. And we know that will make things challenging with a, semina- with a seminary and work-life balance for us. Family and parenting of our boys is our top priority and raising them up in the way they should go. Thank you for your time, Justin. So it sounds like there's going to be some need to, for one or both of them to work outside the home in order to make enough money to get through seminary on their plan. And this is one of the great challenges with seminary education. It's incredibly expensive, burdenly, burdensomely so these days, although our um, this last year, I believe our local LCMS seminaries are trying to do full tuition grants, but still brings a lot. You got to live there. You got to buy books. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. So that's not easy, right? So know that whatever you're going to do, it's not going to be ideal. So whatever we talk about, like 80% of that, right? Uh, and let your 80% be enough. You don't have to get all the way to the perfection. The very fact that you are hungering to be a good father through seminary and asking the question, I'd say kind of tells you you already know enough to like do it. Like you're going to do this. That That's what you have as your goal. Um, what I, looking back at seminary, would have to say to you is that I would have had to, if I had a large family and needed wanted to spend time with them, to do diligence, um, I would have needed to give up the, the extramural basketball playing 
that I did basically. And so when there was a basketball season, three hours a day. When there was not a basketball season, three hours a day. Lots of basketball because there were guys around and I could play basketball. It was fantastic. It was great, you know. And there was overlap between the classes. You talk to guys who end up being your enemies later because they're liberals and you still have relationships. <laughs> really fascinating experience, right? And so, um, but, you know, that's three hours a day. That's plenty of time with your family, honestly. Uh, and so um, I'd say that the seminary education is far less work than you think. If you think it's a lot of work, it's because you have lived in America where you haven't learned what work is. And uh, it's not that much. Um, certainly, there are challenging aspects to it. So if intellectually things like Greek doesn't click well, that's going to be more than for some other guys. And so I, it, I'm probably speaking a bit unfairly. I, I do well in class. Yeah. And so when I say I had a lot of time, I mean, that, that was me. Um, but I, I'm going to say that I complained about not having enough time. And the reason was is because I just didn't want to like actually work that hard and that long. <laughs> I wanted to have whatever my college experience, whatever, which was my high school experience, which was my like young kid experience continue, which is like I get vacations, I get playtime, you know, it's, a da -da -da -da, it's all for fun. And the real world where you try to survive against the devil um, isn't where you get to demand playtime. Right. Like you go and you go to war, you drill, you train. I mean, when, when you're in boot camp, I, I don't think that they give you playtime. Um, and so you're definitely going to care about your body. So don't get me wrong. You should do something to stay athletic, to stay um, active and all this. But for my part, again, taking the opinion that seminary is you going to war and you're buckling in. Um, if you have that opinion, you're going to have plenty of time. They're not going to ask more of you than you can do, except for that there's always more. So like your professors are going to give you like the books you have to read and they're going to give you like tests on like a third of those, right? And then they're going to give you the books you don't have to read. So if you like are like, well, I'm going to war and I'm going to read all of it, well, you might kill yourself, okay? So so what those things are for, by the way, is to build your theological library for, for later. They want you to try to buy or hold on to those books because these questions will be answered in them later. So, so don't try to do everything. Be a smart student. Um, but again, don't think it's going to be so much that you can't do it. When you bring the workload in from outside the home, that does change everything up. I, I didn't have to work, but I did. I still worked. At, yeah, you had a job at the field house. I had a couple and places. And you had a job Sasha's at Sasha's Wine the, and Cheese. Yeah, Wine right? and Cheese. So, um, so it's, 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 not like, huh, it's not like the time is so overwhelming that you're a doctor on, you know, uh, intern at the ER, you cut, cutting your chops for the first five years after school. I mean, that that's rough. That life mm -hmm. is overwhelming, right? It's not that bad. Um, it's a great community that supports family if you want it to. Um, and just your desire to support family um, is, is going to make that happen, I think. So um, do you want to add on to that at all? Uh, let's see. He says balancing his family. Um, hmm. How about let's talk about like – balancing family as an idea right versus like I'll put this in the in the spin of uh well jonathan and meredith have been invited to a thing for people who are not their kids and we have to balance family time right with me time kind of thinking or or whatnot and we just had a very different approach to i we've i, I would say we've never tried to balance family that's yeah. been a positive yeah we just are family right so something the seminary president down in St. Louis while you were there, I believe, was the John same Johnson. the whole time. Yeah. John Johnson. He was yep. there the entire time. And his wife, I remember, she 
led a class that the seminary wives were required to take. It was one of those that mm-hmm. helped train you or, I guess, open your eyes to what was ahead a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. And Welcome um, to being on show. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what the goal of the class or the time together was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few takeaways that I appreciate. And the one that I really love and go back to constantly since we've left is she said, um, anytime you say yes to something, remember you're also saying no to something else. And oftentimes mm. that becomes your family. Mm-hmm. So be aware of that. Yeah. yeah. And that struck me because I can I can see how women like to pick up the slack. Hmm. You know, we like to say, oh, well, n- nobody else is cleaning, so I'll clean. Or nobody else is doing this, so I'll take on that job as well. Um, and oftentimes that means that we end up using the time that we would normally put into our family mm-hmm. into service, which we think is good, and it is good until our wee ones at home suffer for it. Yeah, that's right. And then and then that's where like you start saying, well, we have to balance family now, right, for these wee ones. But the, the wee ones don't need balance. They need you. Uh, they need you to believe they are the reason you're doing these things. Um, the other things can't be the reason themselves. And uh, some of that just is time straight up. Um, but some of it also is intentionality. And that's what I've been learning, uh, recently as well. Maybe we can get in that a different, a different angle. Um, Mrs. Johnson also taught the class for the guys on the same, <laughs> on the same topic. She was a sweet. It was pretty awesome. It was like, use deodorant, iron your clothes. I mean, literally. And like, you're looking around, you're kind of like, you know what? She's right. Oh, she said the other thing that I took away was, and she had this beautiful Southern Belle accent. So mm-hmm. she was like, she was very aristocratic. It was girls, amazing. Yeah. If you have time to open the gift, you also have time to write the thank you. There you go. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's so perfect. Absolutely. Huh. Amen. Yeah. No, I was thankful for that too. Um, uh, the, the the reign of John Johnson as seminary president is not one that I am always politically a fan of, but um, there were good times. And I, again, that that the things that we got out of the seminary, it, they were good things. It's the same problem that when you say yes to something, you say no to something else. Part of the problem with scholasticism at the seminary is that there have been so many things added every trianum at the synod that you know, they should be trained in this. They need to be told about this. Well, are we doing anything about that? So there's all these extracurricular pieces that get kind of lumped onto everything, and you just get this smorgasbord, but no real training. Right? Instead, it's just, a, it's just a hoard of information, Gnosticism being kind of the, the zeitgeist of the age again. What do we got for B here? Ah, thanks, Justin. All right. Put your family first. Sorry, I'm going to say this now. Put your family first. Take your family to worship. Um, make that a priority. So you got daily worship at the chapel. Uh, use it <laughs> uh, and and bring them to that. Show the kids that while you're away, this is where you are. This is what you care about. As you're there, talk to them about 
these prayers specifically, even when they're little, be like, okay, we're going to pray these prayers because this is what it means to be a Christian. And when we don't pray these prayers, we're not Christians anymore. And then God doesn't protect us anymore. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the world falls apart. But since we're praying these prayers and Jesus is with us, even if the world falls apart, we're going to survive. And that's why I'm here because I want to pilot a ship where we believe that kind of thing, right? Like say that to your kids three times a day when you don't see them anytime else because you're studying so hard and they go home and eat dinner with them, right? Let them crawl on you. Just let them touch you, um, smile at them, tell them that they're amazing even when they're kind of small and lumpy and rolly, right? Like, uh, and just, you know, that, that presence is really, really huge. Um, but then when, they're, you know, when you have an asset like that daily service you can walk to, Rockford, anybody want to move here and help? Uh, if when you have that asset like you do at the SEM, um, make use of that. that. That will pay super dividends, even though they may not remember any of it, right? But it's going gonna, it's gonna to form their soul. I just want to say, Sam Buchholz, or Buchholz? Burkholz? Yeah, there you go. Says he remembers seeing you at Sasha's. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Luke has a question. Reverend Fisk, I am preparing to go into my last year in college, and my history capstone class deals with oh, yeah, the historical one. Jesus. I have already read one of the texts required for the course, and I can tell from the names of the other authors, um, Crozen, Ehrman, etc., that this course will be critical of the Gospels. What is the best way to act with humility as far as this class is concerned? It seems like a deep dive into heresy and Gnosticism, yet it bears the title of Biblical Scholarship, and I know many of my classmates will not see the difference. Thank you for your work and many forms of ministry. Um, thank you. Uh, depending on where you're going to school, you know how you engage this class is probably going to be slightly different. Just the context is going to determine what you can do. Um, first, uh, Amazon.com or wherever, in search for the historical Jesus by Gary Habermas is a rebuttal of everything you're going to get shoved down your throat. And it's very good rebuttal scholastic and real um it makes it clear that these other guys um they play fast and loose and cheat uh think of trying to think of the guy who did the uh uh, who's the guy who did the big fat study in the 40s that showed that heart disease was related to fat and it was an epistemological study where he showed how these eight countries that have a high-fat diet. I forget his name. It's in the fat documentary. They have a high-fat diet, and you can show these three countries all have these really high levels of heart disease, and then here's these other eight countries that have not high levels of heart disease. And I don't know what the numbers are, but we'll just say, again, no, here's six and here's eight, right? So obviously, fat's connected with heart disease, epistemological study. The thing is, there are like eight countries in the study he just left off the map, okay? Because they didn't, they didn't fit the picture that was going on there. And that's how these guys operate. Um, uh, Airmen and Crossan, both of whom are outdated and aged by this time too, even in the scholastic field. So to be using that right now is to be way behind. If they're not, if they're not having you read that side by side with Habermas, or I forget who his, he's got a disciple um, who's got a book about this big called, uh, you know, the resurrection of the son of God. Um, unless that's, that's the one that, sorry, that's the other guy. That's the Anglican guy. There's another one. There's, there's so many works that also have a counterpoint in real current scholasticism to these guys who are 40 years, 30 years ago scholarship, uh, that if you're not getting these books with it, it shows you how biased and ignorant your professor is. So how do you act with humility is your question. And let me tell you, well, first off, um, don't do what I'm doing right now. But second off, you're not going to act with humility. You, you're, that's not your goal. 
Your goal in this class is not to act with humility. Now, your goal in this class can be one of two things. It can be to learn or it can be to pass the class. Okay, those are your goals. Yeah. So to pass the class, you might have to just like shut your mouth, hold your tongue, say what they want you to say, um, lie in a sense, right? But then do it knowing that the whole thing's a lie and the whole thing's a sham and you're just moving through Babylon because you have to. What are you going to do about it? Um, or you come with counter information and you write that down and you maybe don't pass the class, right? I mean, this is the challenge, right? Um, my advice in the past has been put your head down, pass the class. Um, these days, I might just not do that myself, right? I just, I'm, I'm enough frustrated by the whole game that I don't care anymore. But, you know, let me be that guy. You don't have to be that guy. Uh, what I want you to do, though, is not think you have to be humble before false teachers. You do not have to be humble before false teachers. Should you be kind? Yeah. Uh, should, should you be, um, what, um, loving? Yes. Um, uh, should you be gentle? Y- yes. You should be all those things to false teachers, but you don't have to be humble before them. In fact, they should be humble before you because they are the ones who are teaching humiliating, desecrating, profanating things. And you instead are trying to cling to the glorious and pure truth of Jesus Christ in which your affliction, your humility has already been absorbed into the cross so that your humility is now the glory of the cross. So you don't need to go and and subject yourself before a liar in order to like earn his favor. You go in as one who's already approved, one who is full of the integrity of God, who knows the absolute truth. And now you're going to have to ask your conscience, what can I write down on this piece of paper in this little game with this little man or woman who thinks they're teaching me truth, but instead are just a gatekeeper in a system that's filled with evil in which, you know, I'm going to go and fight apparently. And so, you know, Daniel, what did Daniel do? I mean, he passed all those tests without ever desecrating his faith. So that's, that's the challenge before you. I'm going to tell you again, there's knowledge out there that you really do want to have in hand because these classes will eke at you over time. They're not really meant to win by straight on attack in terms of like, hey, let's have a conversation and I'll convince you. It's more like, hey, sit there and let me blast you with the same idea repeatedly and show you how foolish you are with you never having a chance to respond. And over time, your psyche is just going to be like... And just get weaker and weaker. Or you're going to get angrier and angrier, which also isn't really good for you. Yeah. So, uh, um, in search of the horse, historical Jesus, Gary Habermas, get a hold of it. It's, it's brief. It will take you through the whole history of this thing as an argument. Um, by the way, the canon of scripture by Bruce, uh, F. F. Bruce would be uh, the airman rebuttal. Although it's not a rebuttal. It's just the actual good work. Excuse me. And look up Chris Roseborough, Pirate Christian Radio, Fighting for the Faith, and this topic, the historical Jesus, and you will have all sorts of audio that you can just mine for confidence as, as you go through this, you know, at the very least, so that every day after you hear this class of this, yeah, he's not real, blah, blah, you can go and, like, hear the real information from, from Chris and, and others. So, um, uh, what do you do? What do you do? It, the problem I have now with my answer about, about, Writing down something that I don't actually believe, cooperate and graduate, um, is I'm not going to be able to find the proverb fast enough. It, it's out of the proverbs, um, and the idea is that when you when you compromise, you actually change your principle. Now, if you compromise tactics until you're blue in the face, it don't matter. But if you compromise a principle. It's not a principle for you anymore. You now I have a new principle. And the new principle is compromise. And that devalues language and life itself. And I'm pretty confident there's a proverb that says that in one proverb. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. And I think it makes sense even without the proverb. So, 
Um, don't humiliate yourself before liars. Recognize that they are humiliating and shaming everything around. And the tormental desire to not speak that you feel is the darkness behind them. And then arm yourself with Christian support, actual truth, real knowledge, so that you can go in and survive whatever you have to and make whatever decisions your conscience needs to make in order to go and live in that what that career, that relationship, that vocation, that adventure that you're, you're pioneering, right? Um, so uh, I, you guys in the trenches, I'm not in the trenches. I'm not in the trenches. If I was in the trenches, I'd get out of the trenches probably. But that's me, again. I, we need people in the trenches. Um, uh, I just... I don't like the red tape, right? And and so I would buck and go and probably be poorer rather than deal with the red tape. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily wise. <laughs> you know, um, it, it could be it's wise for me because that's what I what I would need. A cubicle nearly killed me, and I was only one for a year. Um, and so, uh, but you know, you uh, might have a love of cutting red tape. And man, if you could just cut some more red tape today, oh, gee, and you'd just be happy, right? And so, in that case, you know, each his own on this. The trick again is don't compromise your principles. Don't compromise your principles. Uh, don't let that happen. And then uh, that means don't feel humiliated because they're doing something shameful. You got me? Yeah? Honey, what do you think? You went to school. Yeah, that that's what you're talking about with not compromising makes me think a little bit about what we were talking about yesterday when um, coming into a conversation with somebody who says some things that don't justified that don't um line up felicitous inconsistencies yes. and all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah and the question was that we were asking as we were discussing it like what is it that stops me from actually saying hey you know what you're saying doesn't line up hmm. um why do we suddenly become right. silent and or even flatteries flatterers right. Right. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, even though it's not true. That's not what we are saying. And that's we don't flattery, say yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Amazing, huh? what keeps going through my head is it, he says it's his history capstone class. I don't know if that carries a lot of weight right. in his GPA yeah, for mm. this degree that he's going for. But, I mean, it is something he could potentially think about is how much does this grade or this class count and can mm-hmm. I just use the time to stand up and practice using tactics to, um, there you, go. you know, stand up for my faith? There you go. Uh, free copy of, you got to ask for it now because the, the link isn't working, but free copy of Talk Them Into It when you sign up for Med Christian Mondays, which takes a lot of the book of tactics. Great Google tactics. Great book too. Buy that one. Kind of weaves a bit though. Um, you can get the gist out of Talk Them Into It and it's really not just about defending the resurrection, although it's about that too, actually, um, but it's about uh, how to be the disciple of a master in order to win the master over. Now, that's a one-on-one conversation idea more than a classroom, but there'll be there'll be good stuff there. So yeah, that's really good. Oh, you made me think of something else that I now lost. Where'd it go? Hmm. Hmm. Right, so we're going to move on. I don't know. Say what you said again. Well, I was just encouraging him to use this opportunity to practice speaking and that reminds me so like like yeah so like when you're in high school if you're one of those kids then your grades really matter because your 4.8347 means you're you know um salutatorian and (laughs) uh, and now you're going to maybe get into stanford right uh or wherever uh so once you're into Stanford or wherever, you know, Greenwich State University, 
your grades don't matter to the next level. You got me? A's don't matter, B's don't matter, C's don't matter, D's kind of don't matter. Well, one of them doesn't because you still pass, I think, usually. And so uh, knowing that means you can challenge yourself during this time to combat your perfectionistic tendencies with an awareness that sometimes it's better to lose one battle so you can win a different one. So I'm not saying get a D. I'm saying get a C. And that no one's ever going to know but you, Jesus, and that prof. Yeah. And then as you're getting that C, you know, have fun with that. <laughs> you know, fine, fine. What could I do if I actually don't have to pass this class the way I used to? Huh? Do I even have to do the reading? Was it you who told me a story about writing a paper and the professor? Oh, it was you. Look. <laughs> so this is so this is what they don't tell you till you're done. So if you want to go on and go to like get a master's after you go through all this rigmarole of four-year university, who cares what your GPA is? Who cares how good you did? Who cares? What, I mean, they make you get letters of rec, but no, you got to take the GRE. You know, you got to take another test that tests like whether or not you're smart enough to graduate. And no, but this wasn't that test. Before that test, just to get out of the California state system, because apparently the state system isn't good enough that you could just trust each of these like 15 different schools to do this job, you had to take a basic reading and writing comprehension three-hour exam mm -hmm. just to graduate from the, from the state system. And so I was pretty pissed about this. Like, I've done the work. You gotta be kidding me. And then you go in, you're gonna write, you're gonna write a five-paragraph essay. That's all they want to make sure you can do is write a five-paragraph essay. And I know this already, right? It's just, it's just, and I'm an English reader. I'm so angry about it. So, and then I go in, and then the question is something about, like, um, uh, please talk about, you know, uh, the value of uh, group work and, uh, and your experience of learning at this institution. And, and what I did was I wrote a three-paragraph essay on how writing a three-paragraph essay is easy, on how group work is not writing a three-paragraph essay, and how I shouldn't have to take this test because I just showed you how the question is stupid, the test is stupid, and you can't fail me. And they didn't. I got the lowest possible score and I passed. <laughs> it was fantastic. I was so proud of, of my, my little re rebellious. You get my rebelliousness there, don't you now? So don't follow in my train too closely. You might run into a wall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Oh, goodness. Okay. Oh, lowest possible score is great. It's great. Okay, so should we move on? <laughs> Question Question C ah. is from Cafe Sola. Do pastors, as a result of schooling, study, examination, and ordination, mm. have some kind of spiritual lens that makes them able to discern spiritual matters in a correct way that lay people can't? So lay people should not think they know enough to question, challenge, or correct the pastor on any question about doctrine or practice, etc., in a local congregation? Side thought. Have you ever been approached by a lay person who questioned or challenged you on a spiritual, doctrinal, or practice matter, or sought to correct some point you made in a teaching or sermon, and you saw their point and saw your error and changed or corrected the practice or teaching? All right. There's got kind of two questions there. Um, and the first one's a very, very clear answer, I think, because what you asked is, um, does the Bible teach sacerdotalism? Uh, does it teach that there is a, 
another level of Christianity called a priesthood, in which there is a special anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, beyond that which the body of Christ gets, uh, beyond the proclamative function of the apostolic office. No, there is truly like an Aaronic priesthood that is by spiritual juju, so that if you don't have this spiritual anointing, which in fact makes you better at fighting sin and better at overcoming the world, if you don't have that, then you also probably shouldn't consecrate the Lord's Supper because you can't. Now, that's a Roman teaching. Um, I don't know how the East conjuncts with that. I know that the idea of apostolic succession and the laying on of hands is not completely distinct from that. But what I'll be very, very glad to say is that there's just nothing about it in the Bible. There's not a thing about it in the Bible. That somehow this preaching office, which itself is confusing enough in the scriptures to figure out what the apostolic office, the preaching office is. But there's nothing there beyond what it says that would lead us to believe you're set apart on a level that sets you apart from Christians. Now, with all that said, I'm going to say the answer is actually yes, because they read the Bible more than anybody else does. And so as a result, they actually just know more. They have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit called 10,000 hours of Bible reading. You can have it too, though. It's not from ordination, except for that when they get ordained, then suddenly they don't get paid unless they do this. (laughs) So it is from ordination. You see what I'm saying? And you see how, again, the question has to be very carefully worded. Um, What we want to make sure and not teach, is that there's tears to Christianity. There are tears to discipline. There are relationships we have with each other in order, and there are orders of family, okay? But there is no, like, tear of spiritual regeneration unto life in Christ. There there is not. There's, There's daily renewal and drowning. There's immature and mature. There's foolish and wise. But there isn't, like, Christian and then super Christian. <laughs> uh, there's, there's Christian on the path. There's Christian struggling. There's Christian set free. But it's all one tier. And so when a pastor is ordained, what we're acknowledging in that moment is that that guy's going to talk about God more or less whether we like it or not, but we like it. Because if it was not, we would not let him do this, Right? And so we've heard him talk enough. We believe that he wants to be a preacher. He stands among us as a voice already. So here, we acknowledge it. Yeah? Whereas if you, if you have everyone say, no, we won't do that, and you go preach anyway, I mean, that's a whole different place, right? But is, is there a juju anointing that comes down there? It's kind of like, I mean, Rome teaches the same thing about confirmation. I remember hearing about this in Europe. I, I was there listening to a confirmation in Hungarian and asking my buddy to, to translate for me. And he was telling me how the guy's saying, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you today. And you're going to find a new urge to live righteously and to fight sin. And like I asked his brother later that day, he's like, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, I, don't, I don't know. Because it's just nonsense. Right? You're just, just saying something's going to happen. But then, and see how, how bad this is for the faith. When you make promises that don't come true because they're not the scripture's promises, then what's that young man do? He doesn't think the priest tells the truth anymore. Uh, yes, that's a, so sacerdotalism. No, the pastor, if he has anything, it's it's a immediately driven need to know his Christianity and talk about it, and then the church recognizes that that only comes from the Holy Spirit, and that Christ has established this for the good of his congregations, and so they test the man who has this need. 
and hopefully they send him to other men who know well what to say and might see what his flaws would be, right? Um, and, and curb off those en- edges and then off your stand. But is there any power you have at that moment beyond what the Bible says? No. And so that's why if you take your mouth off what the Bible says, I mean, woe to you, preacher. Woe to you. Um, so have I ever been uh, confronted and then uh, had to change my mind and repent? Yeah, like I'd say multiple times, although on a lot of different levels. And so... The question's a little vague, so I don't, I, you know, yes is the big answer, but I'd say it's once a year that my man Dean at church is like, well, pastor, you know, verse 37 in chapter 14 says this, and he's absolutely right. I just got some piece of history wrong or like some name or whatever. He's absolutely right every time, right? And I'm every time I'm like, thank you. <laughs> and I... I will try to say that differently next time, right? And so uh, it, I'm glad for that, even though it's embarrassing when it happens. Um, and then, uh, you know, in terms of like, I, I've definitely been in teaching situations where someone stood up and said, um, I think that's wrong. Uh, and then not changed because what they're saying is very clearly misguided, right? And so that's an interesting place to find yourself where you want to um, uh, defend what you've said to someone who you're also guiding. Yeah, that's hard. Um, and then there's like like real repentance. So, I mean, this last year has been one of repentance, but it hasn't been because someone came to me and said something to my face from the Bible in church. So I, I can't say that I've really had that happen. I do know that as a Christian um, at seminary, uh, I remember being directly confronted whew, about a text of scripture um, by a brother uh, and this had to do with birth control and um, it I mean I, I sat and stared at that text for quite a while <laughs> so, what does that mean um, and uh, but I absolutely uh, turned around on that um, we did pretty quick and Chloe's born about a year later and uh, thank God so so yes but from a from a person in the pew um, not yet but that doesn't mean I don't expect that. Uh, in fact, I would say I'm kind of embarrassed to say it hasn't happened. It maybe means I'm too unapproachable <laughs> um, or something like that. So, because I, I think what James says, you know, if a man is able to guard his, his tongue, he is a perfect man, uh, the rudder to guide a ship. And I think he does, that is talking about church a little bit there. That is talking about when you speak up in public and that the pastor's task is to be that, that public tongue and in that way, I would say all pastors should be confident that sent by Jesus, they do have the special, unique gift to be able to do that. But this isn't like two tiers of Christianity. This is a billion tiers of Christianity. This is where every single one of us as Christians is specially, uniquely, and, and perfectly designed by Jesus to be redeemed by Jesus um, uh, with a full, individualized faith growing maturation experience that fellowships with that of everybody else and so like you're going to be spirit filled for the moment you need to be in and so if you're in a pulpit every week yeah i mean i guess there's a little more going on right there but it's not like this is for comparison or something right it's it's, what it is is that each of us are being led by the spirit in the election of us, which is a grand design, a beautiful pattern woven with Christ and his cross at the center, his blood flowing as the threads that tie us together. Um, and, and in there, then we all are distinct. And so, you know, amongst preachers, there are men of fire and there, there are men of calm. You know, there's, there's wartime and there's peacetime. And, and all of us have different edges of um, 
skill set, different members of the body, so that when all parts are working together, like a body joins joins the same, right? All all of that. So, um, so your narrow question, sacerdotalism, right out. Like we can't do that. But I mean, who's teaching that today? Actually, I mean, Rome officially, but uh, what's is is LCMS people really teaching that? That's golly. Um, and the bigger thing I think is for all of us to believe that the single power of the preacher is the power to have the scriptures be his mind and that he's paid to spend the time on that that people who have to farm can't do now not everyone's farming anymore but that's still why we see the value of paying the preacher uh, uh, for that so yeah but you can do that too because when you pick up these words right it's they're in you for you to speak. You just aren't paid for it. You aren't the public voice, but you are though too. I mean, could be wrong. It's like, I don't want you to go commune anybody, right? But if you're standing in a group of men um, and you're a man and no one else is speaking for Christ, then you're the, you're the preacher. If there's nobody else who's going to be the preacher at that moment, you're the preacher. Does it mean you're ordained? No. Does it mean you're actually the shepherd of a car? I mean, no. But you're the Pendragon, you're the voice, you're the reflection of your preacher, you're the extension of the body of Jesus through your preacher to that moment. You are the church in that place, right? So um, that line between between preacher and you needs to be less about talking and more about who's the father of the community. Nah. And, and how the preacher as a man who is in the community as a voice, that's the voice of the father to many. But the voice of the father should not be the only voice in the home. That's that's a bad thing. Yeah. What do you think? I think that you've been blessed over the years by many men who have studied scripture um, commentaries on their own and then been equipped enough to converse with you. Wow. I don't even know how loud that is in the microphone. Okay. <laughs> He's sitting there grunting eyes. Right. Um, I'm listening. So when when these men have come and been a sounding board for you or have been able to dialogue with you on deep levels of theology, mm -hmm. that has blessed you and enriched your ability to then proclaim the word from the pulpit or on YouTube or whatever it is. Iron sharpens iron. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that your encouragement to continue studying as lay people is a good one to speak with each other as you study mm -hmm. even if it's just, i mean i think groups of three are, are ideal honestly it's nice to have bigger groups but little tripods of people who are kind of accountability connected to hey let's read the same stuff and then just talk about it you know i mean and not being afraid of that this isn't like I can hear somebody out there groaning like, oh, he's advocating the Bible study where you all just say what you think and it go around in a circle. And, no, I'm not. I'm advocating that three people who are not in a Bible study talk about the Bible and then if they come up with something that's disturbing, they go talk to their pastor about it because that would be community growth. That would be not a program, but the Holy Spirit working through the word among us. And I don't know how to bring this one up, probably not with this question. I'll just leave it on the floor for the moment. But you've noted, Mayor, like it's pretty amazing how these other church body groups that have all these problems with their conscience, whereas they're they're bound by legalism and you know the, the Lutheran understanding of the sacrament certainly gives a lot of people that come out of that some freedom. Their habits of Bible reading are significantly better than ours. Right. Oh my gosh, it's embarrassing. What happened to us? Well, I know what happened to us, but we'll, we'll, many things, many things. Biological poisoning. 
Brief History Power. Check that out if you haven't. Mad Christian Discord. Have you heard about that? That's a complete tangent as we move toward our next question. The Mad Christian Discord is a place where you can continue this conversation. There is a channel for After Hours with the Saturday Morning Show, but there's a lot of other channels there. It is one of the most active Christian networks in the world today with high-level, engaging, what? Deep-diving, fact-checking Christians of thinking goodwill. And as long as we can be there as we are there, what you find is a great deal of support. Is there fights in the street? Unfortunately, as we learn to be men together and we find out that the internet is the internet, yeah, there's fights in the street. It's Fight Club. Um, But Fight Club means that let the two guys fight and it'll probably work out. And at the end of the day, um, if I have to come in and tell you what the Book of Concord says, then that's what I'll do. But we haven't had much of that. What we have instead is skirmishes here and there and then a lot of people passing on network support information in a time in which it's hard to get good information. If you don't want to go through all that and get on the Discord, you can just sign up for the Mad Christian Mondays, this newsletter, e-news, newspaper, whatever you want to call it. It comes out every Monday in your email inbox. It is for free, and it will give you enough of what happened last week that I kid you not, I kid you not, you can actually untether every other news source you have. You can try it for a week. Block everything off and just read Mad Mondays and see if you're not brought up to date with what your world I should say, what you actually need to know from your world to live where you are right now because it's not as much as you think and there's way more than you need in Mad Mondays including all these. I don't always click on them but there's this whole section on the bottom. I mean, <laughs> Kate is a bag. No, Frisbee thing is the best. This whole section on the bottom of like dogs on tricycles and like, <laughs> you know, planes made of like sugar and like like all the weird stuff so you know you get the news you get the weird quirky cats in boxes and all of that for free for free um every monday so you can you know spend more time at home with your family less time searching what gab uh, and all that so that was the question on sacerdotalism. Let's, let's move on. All right. So our next question is from Ben. However, I'm kind of a Luddite, and so I don't know what a BOC app is. So uh, I'm... Okay. So it's called the BOC app, and it's a Book of Concord app. Oh, there you go. That has been recently <laughs> created by somebody, and it's good, but there's a question. That I'm not even sure I can answer coming out of it. Yeah, it's interesting. All right. So Ben says, I've been using Evangelical Catholic as my Book of Concord app. There you go. Because the name of the app is Evangelical Catholic, apparently. If you, okay. if you look in the app store for Evangelical Catholic, you'll find a Book of Concord app. Oh. I don't know this for Very sure. Very cool. But it sounds like it, yeah. And it includes the 1592 Saxony Visitation Articles as a Calvinism rebuttal. Regarding baptism, one of the statements rejected as false and erroneous is the following. The infants of Christians are already holy before baptism in the womb of the mother, and even in the womb of the mother are received into the covenant of eternal life. Otherwise, the sacrament of baptism could not be conferred on them. How does this reconcile with the words of Psalm 22, 1 through t- or 9 through 10, but thou art he that took me out of the womb, thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. What do we do with this? Are these contradictory? Are the visitation articles authoritative in any way? Do the original languages lend any insights? Ben. That's a really good question. Um, and would you stop reading the Bible? Because the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to have a problem with all the doctrine. 
it's not that Lutheran doctrine is wrong. It's that you have to understand Lutheran doctrine arose in the context of a certain set of arguments at which everything's being marshaled for those arguments. And so all the Bible verses that are connected or all the comments that are connected or the rejections that are, are connected is because of where that is taking place. So when, when the Calvinists are saying at that time that, you, that, the, that the child is holy because of the parents, uh, and so uh, therefore uh, infant baptism is irrelevant, doesn't even matter because they're already holy because of the parents. They're already in the covenant. That's big Calvinist language there. When they say covenant, they mean a lot more than most people do. They mean an, like a certain community that is established by apparently not baptism. See, I would mean, I think that it is exactly right, but baptism is the way the covenant gets established. But so for them, baptism is just a sign, but not actually the covenant, right? It's just a, it's just a, they don't say symbols much. So, um, they're using this as an argument against infant baptism, against and saying that baptism doesn't matter. You can do it as an adult. You can do it as a, a child, but it's effectively, again, an ordinance would be another way they would say it. Um, but it's not a place where faith is created. So from that little phrase, they're teaching a bunch of other stuff out of it. But now remember, that little phrase is in German. And now you're reading it in English, and it's making you question the Bible in English. And this is where you have to just stop and say, okay, it doesn't matter what it says. The Bible is going to be right, and whatever our translation about this argument, it was right probably against whoever we were arguing against, but it's not there for us to learn from now that the Bible's not true. Or to replace the Bible as our devotion so that we don't ever read these words in the Bible and see what the Bible says is true, and instead come away with this big thing about how infants blah, 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 and it's all caught up in legal discourse from an age 400 years removed. I'm not saying that those arguments aren't important or that, in fact, what they said isn't true when you're arguing against a Calvinist about the need for baptism because baptism is where the covenant is established with an individual once they're born. Do Lutherans teach that infants in the womb are in the covenant until they're born? Yes, we do. Well, how can it be both? We're not rationalists. That's how, you know, I mean, we're not tied to math on everything. We trust the scriptures. We trust God to be more transcendent than transcendentalism. We trust God to be more eminent than imminency. We, we know that God's able to do all things. And so if he wants to save the infant of the mother in the womb by virtue of the prayers of the faith around that infant as actual psalmic and biblical word of God in church every week as the infant grows, and if he even wants to put the blood of the Lord's Supper into that infant's veins before they understand it, who are we to say? Once the infant's born, go into all nations, baptizing and teaching. All right, we baptize that baby. And then we believe Romans 6, it says that baby is buried and raised in Christ. We believe this is a washing, a water bath of regeneration, as Titus 2.3 says. Is it 2.3? I think it's 2.3. Um, and so, so we hold to that. And then the danger again is when people attack that, we let their arguments against us lead us into counter arguments that somehow undermine our own position. And I would say at this point, that's what this part of the visitation articles is doing. Not that it doesn't belong in the visitation articles in that argument as a legal argument, as a point in that legal argument, but don't take it as like the only way to ever talk about things. They're talking about covenant theology as defined by Calvin, not as defined by the Bible. What we want to do today is forget that argument and just figure out what covenant theology is in the Bible. 
could go a lot better than having to mud our way through a bunch of counter-arguments retranslated three different times through four languages, or, well, two languages, but, but, so you're, by the way, though, I mean, your finding of Psalm 122, 9 and 10 is fantastic. That's just an absolutely beautiful verse to find. It's precisely the kind of thing that a good reference uh, Bible would have, um, uh, uh, kind of, or a good reference resource on baptism and on these kinds of arguments would have. Uh, uh, I would have thought of 139 personally. That's kind of where I would have gone. Uh, first be the hand mentioned John the Baptist leaping in the womb. There are plenty of evidences that the infants have, can have, have faith by virtue of being in the covenant community, by being people who are in the people that are being given the word. What Calvinism is saying is more that the act of starting the covenant like an ex opera operato thing just keeps them in until the age of accountability and reason, which they kind of believe in and kind of don't because they're not all Baptists. And that's why to talk about Calvinists isn't even possible. Some Calvinists out there is mad. He's like, that's not Calvinism right now. He just did it. And it's like, I get it, dude. You guys are really hard to talk about because you're not all the same. And some of you are, are aggro, like very tight. And some of you are like all over the map. And so with that said, um, uh, for the question, right? Uh, I think the Saxon visitation articles are what you would call a tertiary authority. Uh, a secondary authority, but remember that the Book of Concord is a tertiary authority. So, so you have a tertiary authority on a tertiary authority. There's a nice book they made us by the seminary called uh, the Book of Concord Sources and Contexts, and in it, it has like all these other documents that were around the time of the Book of Concord, including X 400 and however many odd thesis against Luther, where he like makes up all you know Luther has a long nose that looks like a witch. Like it's not one of them, but it's it's like that, right? It's propaganda, um, and so that's in there and all this. Like those things were really useful when I wanted to know the history of the time period and figure out what's going on around it, but. In in terms of authority in my faith, the only thing that holds any of that is the Book of Concord, and that's because as a pastor, I've subscribed to it in order to guide my teaching and practice by it. Um, I would say to you that the Book of Concord does not have to be authority for anybody outside of those who subscribe to it to preach according to it as a guide, because you can come to everything it says, orthodox-wise, with the Bible without the book like so so run this just through your like oh my goodness lutheran's brain fog here okay what happened if lutheran's like if we really fail like we fail so bad in the next 40 years it's quite possible that like the book of concord vanishes like it goes away like they, nobody saves it it's gone oh my goodness what's gonna happen to the church then i mean what, what do you think that all those other bibles in other places might might cause people to find the same truth someday could it do it right now? Yes, it could. And so this is where, please don't hear me bashing the Book of Concord. I'm just saying it needs to be what it is and not a replacement for the font. And so in that regard, the Saxon Visitation article is a fascinating bit of historical context on the Book of Concord, but published in 1592. It's way past 1580. <laughs> uh, and I think 1580 was a nice place where they said, we've had enough uh, conflict over a generation and a half that we're going to leave this Ebenezer in the sand to be our defense on Judgment Day. And now you have a bunch of us who come along afterwards like, man, that's a pretty place, good place to stand on Judgment Day. I think I'll stand there too. Stand right beside you and fight the war that's in front of me now, which frankly is not against sacerdotalism and uh, largely is not against actual Calvinism. I mean, very, very rarely am I talking to a Calvinist. Very rarely. Mostly pagans. And they don't care about this question. <laughs> you know? Oh, goodness. What do you think, honey? I don't know. Does it matter to you? That one's like, it's a bit inside the, yeah, the narrows, is. the weeds. 
Yeah, I think you did a good job. These guys whose names have defined how we think Christians can be organized for a couple hundred years, maybe the solution isn't to like argue about which one of them is more right. It's to take what you think they taught that's right and try to argue it exclusively from the Bible. Then you might find out which one's true. <laughs> I'm going to suggest I'm in it and that Lutheranism does in fact, as a historic confession, have something to offer to you. Um, but you can find it in the Bible if you stop ignoring the text you don't like. Yeah. What's up? What's the next one? Um, Do you need well, a break? How are we the doing? next one, we're at 1019, oh and the next one is the two part about the sons. Okay. okay. So do you want to take a break now? Uh, no, I'm just going to let you just read it, and um, okay. I'm going to turn the mic off, drink some water. And um, this one is, this is a tough question. I think it's got a lot of pieces in it. We probably won't be able to talk about all of it, but emotional psychology. Emotional psychology. Um, how do you work through the combination of spiritual growth, torment, and modern assumptions um, as a family and as a people? Uh, yeah, go for it. Dear Pastor Fisk, I am a mom of adult males who are baptized and still live at home. I married a man, a man that tends to passivity who had no good father model of his own. Throughout their tender years, he abdicated most of the responsibilities of father to me, yet he would passively and actively undermine my authority. As parents, we always appeared divided, and the boys knew how to manipulate dad to get out of trouble with me, which in turn trained them to avoid accountability and tune out my correction. Now they are adults, their characters are formed, lacking respect for personal property, honor of parents, house rules, and a sense of duty. Their habits are so ingrained, it seems even more impossible for him to father them, so he does not. I trace it all to computer addiction and not investing in things that are real because of it. I have hated the computer for all the pain it has brought my marriage, and my family, and I have to fight resentment and my pride daily. Every time I am disrespected by the boys or him due to, due to a screen, I am attacked by helplessness and despair. I have prayed for decades for things to change. On my strong days, I take it in stride and count it all joy and talk about my feelings calmly on weaker days, I scream and cry and rage at the level of carelessness. They all judge me as a hypocrite because I get so fleshly, yet I preach the word to them to appeal to the new man inside them. Even though I have a rich devotional life and they know it, they use my tendency to rage as a reason not to listen to my counsel or my prompts to read the Bible. I know many women are in my shoes with having their men taken from them by the screen, and it seems insurmountable. Other than finding solace in the Psalms, is there anything I can do? Thanks, and God bless you. SC. Screen Widows. Screen Widows. You can talk about that. Well, I remember when you got your first smartphone, and um, I called it being a phone widow. Um, yeah, suddenly we had another member at the dinner table with us. Um, and the eye contact was a little harder to find. Yeah. I always had trouble with eye contact. I still do. 
but I don't doubt that it has been inhibited more by uh, the soul sucking experience of letting my, I don't know, my mind be taken away. The, I don't know if that's even true. This is what's difficult about this conversation for me. I know what my experience has been. And now we're really just in my experience and not a scientifically diagnosable thing. But I know that with the, the television, the TV, as part of my soul from before I can remember, two, three, four, you know, is, is always there. Um, the apathy, the passivity, the lack of testosterone, um, I think diet has something to do with that too. Uh, but time without that screen has made me aware of my eye contact problem in ways I was never aware of before. It has also given me the chutzpah to fight it slowly, very slowly. So that's a fascinating thing that you brought that up, that it, you noticed even less of it um, at that point. But it makes sense because you're always trying to look down and your mind then is always somewhere else. You're increasingly far away. And I also recall um, the shift when I guess I was taking our youngest, or not youngest, our oldest to the park as a little toddler uh-huh. versus taking our youngest to the park as a toddler. And the en- amount of engagement that the parents have now mm-hmm. versus then with their kids. At the park. And each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually would meet women and talk with them mm-hmm. when I was at the park playing with my child. And... Um, and we were playing with our children or, or guiding them together. Hmm. And oftentimes that meant guiding each other's children. You know, oh, whoop, don't, don't mm-hmm, fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't jump there. Um, and, and now it's parents on the bench looking at their phones mm-hmm. and the kids playing. And then if they, they send out the cry, the parents look up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's heartrending. It is. Um, and, and I mean, if you've watched this long enough, you know, I'm a little bit on a jive about this and I probably will be for a long time. What I don't want to do is be, uh, the legalist about it and, you know, I, or uh, let you think that we're doing more than we're doing. I mean, there's a computer in front of you. I have an iPad, you know, it's, so it's not as though we have gone full on Luddite entirely. Although we're certainly aware that if you don't try to move on the Luddite spectrum away from overwhelm to Luddite, then you're going to be in the land of overwhelm. And so we're trying to move toward like more Luddite because we, we realize that the, the tech um, is expensive, it's hard to maintain, and it doesn't fulfill its promises most times. And so for our part in our like home, it's just something we want to remove to create more peace and, and kind of uh, time wherein things like the Word of God can't exist among us. Well, and we're also re- noticing the health um, yeah. problems that it's bringing to us. Yeah. I mean, people joke about needing to do certain stretches for their neck because they're constantly looking down. Right, right. But that's a real thing. Right. It is. Um, you know, nobody wants to have a curved spine. Right, right. <laughs> it, uh, wrongly curved spine right i mean there's, there's a lot and, of different ways that biologically it's not helpful to us yeah right? um to go more into this question again um one of the thoughts i had in this is this is a this, first off this question is really sad and i again we're not going to be able to, to perfectly address your question there's just so much here your pain is real their pain is real it's very complex we only have one side of the story and so we just i don't want anything we say here to be taken um too directly as the final answer to, to your situation, because yours is very complex. Um, what I want everyone else to see is how this is a really great demonstration of how the man is always the head. 
no matter what. Like you can try not to have it be the case. It will be the case. It just might be a really upside down place. Um, and But it's going to follow the man. And this is why, ladies, before you get married, it really does matter more than that you like him. And it really does matter more than that he's funny. It really does matter more than that you can look at him. Uh, it matters that he's going to go in a good direction. And so it's hard to see that early because guys talk a lot and they definitely put on a show in order to woo the lady. And sometimes they weren't putting on a show, but something comes along and changes them two years later, three years later, and then things change that way too. You want a man whose trajectory is stable, firm, and, and uh, ingrained. You're only going to learn that over time. You're going to learn it by seeing him in community with other people, not just with you, right? because they're going to help you see how he acts and whatnot. Um, so ladies, look for a man who's going to be your active leader. Um, and I know the world says the opposite of that. So many of you resent that, right? You just don't even want it. And well, okay, then you might end up with a really passive guy. Uh, and uh, a whole upside down host of problems with you on the back end, not knowing where to go and feeling powerless um, for, again, a host of reasons. Um, powerlessness, by the way, uh, is something I'm pretty familiar with as a feeling. And let me suggest to you that when a Christian is feeling powerless, it is because torment is near. Torment wants the Christian to give up on Christianity. And so it uses proximity of unbelief in order to silence the Christian. So in this regard, you praying your prayers out loud and continuing to do so is really my my advice to you. Like First uh, Peter 3 is pretty clear too. Like in your role, that is in fact the thing to put all your faith, hope, and trust into is that your own prayers of the Psalter on their behalf um, are your sure defense and your also offense against them. And as you see right now, it kind of is an offense against them, um, which demonstrates what a challenge you're in, right? Um, now, in terms of how you think about them, I want to say this too. It's very important um, that and uh, that anybody, I'm mean, going to talk about anybody specifically, but that anybody who says, I'm a Christian, and then walks completely differently from what the Bible says, whether this is Proverbs, whether this is the Ten Commandments, whether it's the list Paul gives at the end of you know Galatians, it, it doesn't matter. There's scripture, and it says, walk like this, and you're like, no, or I don't feel like it, or I don't want to. Okay, you're a fool. And we as Christians need to be able to say that about Christians without saying, therefore, they're unbelievers, but actually that they might be. And this is the problem with the fool. You got to pity the fool because you don't understand the fool because the fool says things that don't make sense. The fool says one thing, and he says a different thing. It's like, fool, which one do you believe? And he's like, I believe all right. Okay. You're a fool. So you don't follow the fool, right? Uh, you, you pity the fool. And then you recognize that there is such a thing as folly and that you don't have to be one. And again, you know, the wisest guy in the world wrote a book about how not to be a fool. So if you're not reading it, you know, you're in trouble. You know, you're reading it, you say, right? You're, this is part of your prayer life. Well, then you found that with, what, with wisdom comes suffering. And the moment you try to stand up against worldly behavior in a household or in a community, you're going to be assaulted by dark forces that don't want you to do it. They're going to try to silence you, and it won't be the way you expected. It'll be your own heart that's feeling overwhelmed and quieted in the wrong way. It won't be the quiet of, I feel confident right now to sit and wait while this godlessness takes place because I know Judgment Day is coming. It'll be the quietness of feeling like, oh, I have to do something because i got to do something. And that's it. That's torment. You don't have to do something. You don't have to fix it. That's not your role. You're not the head, ma'am. You're not the head. 
And so we, we do want to go in this direction, Meredith, and I know you'll have something to say um, about how there's this habit that the man doesn't want to do his job. Could it be because there's thorns in the ground? Could, could it be because it makes his face sweat and it's going to kill him someday and he knows it? So he doesn't want to do his job. And so he doesn't do his job. And then the lady, like, she sees he's not doing his job. She's discontent with that. She says, I'll do his job. Funny thing is, the more she does that, the less she does her job. And that's just Genesis 3 and what God says will happen because we sinned. Nah, I want my wife to talk about putting your hand in the plow and it's not yours to put to. Because I know you, you'll say it well. Well, um, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier when we, as um, seminary wives, you know, what are we saying yes to? And then consequently, what are you going to say no to to make that happen? Um it it's challenging for us as women because we don't want to believe that we're fragile Mm. and we want to believe what the world tells us about how we can do it like um that world war ii propaganda girl what was it rosie the river rosie (laughs) ah rosie (laughs) um you know what you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but should you? Mm -hmm. Is it wise? Yeah. And what, what are, what is your vocation? And what will be long-term a blessing to those who are given to you to nurture and care for your husband is yours to love. How can you love him? And sometimes that means letting him fail. A lot, probably. Because <laughs> he's a boy. And you that's know, how boys learn. It's Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. And it doesn't make sense to my woman head at all. But I keep reading and listening to different authors and researchers talk about marriage and how do you support your man, wife, and what is it that you can do? And one of the biggest things is let him fail and love him anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if he is going the wrong way to go to your dinner party and you're going to be late, let him make the wrong turn. Because if you correct him, it's devastating mm-hmm. to his pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how can he repent if he never fails? Yeah, right. That's well said too. That's really good. Um you said a couple of words in there I want to I want to pick up on and then translate a little bit too uh, for the sake of our English listeners. Um, words like vocation. Uh, vocation is the way that Lutherans say relationship. And so because there's some people out there who teach a strange theology of relationship with Jesus, we don't believe we have one with him. And so instead, we don't talk about it. And then some of us talk about vocation instead and, and want that to replace it, but it really isn't, it doesn't really help a lot of people. So what you're really dealing with here, though, is, is so as a woman trying to know what I am, your relationships with the people you're related to, not the ones you choose, right? But you are actually like physically related to them. That's your nature. And we'll tell you who you are. So observing your parents will tell you who you are. And you want to change? You got to know who you are first and actually own it, right? Um, and then observing your body, 
And what it does will also tell you who you are. And this is where, you know, boy, girl is pretty obvious. You know, stand, sit when you go to the bathroom, all that kind of thing, right? It's, it's really, really clear. Um, your nature tells you a lot. I heard a story recently about a young woman who had been homeschooling thanks to the 2020 movement. But now, since things are kind of going back to normal, although the masks are still on at the school, um, uh, sending the youngest off to school, socialize was the idea. And uh, talked about her talk about the, all the tears, how hard it was, how important it was, how good it was. I'm like, well, it just the tears tell you it ain't natural. <laughs> the tears tell you that that relationship is breaking. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So along with relationship, vocation also tells us in that relationship what our role is. And so her tears are telling her. You know what? I mean, it, granted, we sometimes we have tears for the wrong reasons because of this broken world. Absolutely. It's, you know, whatever. It's um, hard. And as fragile people, we women cry. Um, but her tears are, are kind of a window into her heart that's telling her uh, this, this relationship I have is not being... Um, I am not fulfilling the role I have in this relationship. I'm not happy with it. Yeah. You're not happy with it. Your body is screaming at you. You're not happy with it. And, but somehow there's a story that you think is more important than your body. And that's Gnosticism. I'll tell you. That is the definition of the term. Ancient heresy, the first and kind of the original. Um, uh, one more word. You talked about man's pride. <laughs> In a wrong turn. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about uh, the need to recapture biblical language and uh, to discover ways to say what the Bible says without um, kind of adopting unnecessary English baggage. So the word pride is a bad word in English, right? It's a bad word. If you have pride, normally it means you're proud and nobody likes you because you're then arrogant. And those are all kind of the same thing. And yet we'll say, you know, take some pride in your work, right? And so there's this positive edge to pride too, but there's no real positive edge to arrogance, and pride basically does mean arrogance to most people. So trying to save the positive edge of pride is what grammarians and friggin' classicists do. Um, but what I think you should do is say integrity instead, because integrity is the positive side of pride, and it's a word the Bible uses, and David says in Psalm 119, you can walk in, which is really, really cool to know there is a form of godly pride. Let's just not call it pride. It's called integrity. It means that you know who you are and where you stand you know who you are and where you stand. Right. So to protect your dear husband's integrity, yes. we don't tell him that he's making a wrong turn. Depends on if there's a bridge or not that's out or that kind of thing, right? But, but there might indeed be a time where wisdom says, I know better than my husband right now, but I love my husband and he just needs to be the husband right now. And you know, it's going to take two more minutes. So, oh well. Yeah, there's some there's some real wisdom in in that perspective, regardless of what the actual like place that all this is going on at, right? Um, and it's not that the husband can't ever be questioned or must always be right. So that's where the real wisdom is learning to to have conversations when it's the time for the conversation too, right? So when he's like adrenalized and trying to get you through a crowd, right? That's probably the time just to let him go, right? Um, you know, when you're sitting down relaxing and you have the time for the eye contact and the uh, hold hands or whatever yeah now you now you say um 
that thing you said, I'm not so, you know, and, and you and you have that conversation. But that's the public support of a husband versus the private, and then in the home that becomes a double thing because the kids are kind of a mini public in the home. Um, but I think that's really valuable just to to say that the role of the wife is to preserve the husband's integrity. That's her. That's her task. Um, it's his role for her too, just from a different relationship. You know, he wants to provide a place of integrity for you to grow. Right. Um, relationship. I I really do think that word's important. Um, accountability, character, repentance. Okay. She talks about adult children who are baptized, live at home and are disrespectful. So, uh, um, your role as a mother seems to be pretty clear cut as you get to continue doing what you're doing, trying to fix things less and pray more. Um, and I don't know that I have another kind of proverbial answer. Um, I think that you can speak to the son's desire. I mean, I mean, maybe they don't. Maybe they're hardened and the, that side of them has been turned off. But I know that from personal experience, when my son sees my hurt, he wants to fix it. Men want to fix. It's true. And so if we're able to calmly expose how hurt we are, um, it goes a long way with their with their love for us and their desire to, um, uh, grief. Yeah. Grief. And, but here's the thing. Rage does not express to other people how hurt you are in a way that they understand it. It does express to other people how hurt you are. That's true. Um, but it's, it's very poor at communicating, right? So, uh, and fits of rage, uh, are things that you know we're really warned against as uh, works of darkness. So I am going to defend Christian anger uh, a lot, I think, in the future, because I think we need to be angry about certain things. But in your anger, do not sin. And realize that rage and communication don't work well together. But grief and sharing your grief um, is something that you can work toward. Um, again, I'm going to say that my book, Talk Them Into It, is built for these kinds of conversations, um, there's another great book called Crucial Conversations. Uh, it is a secular book about high stakes and how when you're in a really tense conversation um, to have tactics for self-control, seeing and understanding the other person's points, limiting the conversation to the things that matter, all that. <clears throat> to have to do that with your sons is kind of like not ideal. But if their character is formed, as you have said, and they are disrespectful, as you have said, then they are fools, as you have said. And your grief is understandable, but your rage, again, is what you must repent of. And from there, pray for their repentance, knowing that it's outside of your hands at this point. Now, this is you know, the hardest thing for a mother to know. You know, I mean, the boy is what, 18, 17, 16, 15, 21? I don't know where it is, ladies. But, you know, when he's 36, like, you're not going to be the one who gets him back to church if you haven't kept him there. And I'll tell you, the Roman Catholics know the way you keep a boy in church is mom in regards to guilt. Okay? So you didn't take the guilt train early enough. That's probably okay. It's probably a lie. Because Christians know the way you keep a man in church is his father. Um, believing. But uh, your place now is, is to pray and trust Jesus to have a path for them. Pray according to their baptism. Lord, you've washed them and they don't see it. They don't see it. Or if it's there, it's weak and it's being swallowed. Um, 
but there is there is no promise that when someone walks away they come back and when someone's evidently in choosing to walk as a fool then they're evidently in choosing to walk as a fool and they might just walk away and yeah pity the fool answer the fool lest he be firm in his folly and yet don't answer the fool lest you become like him so it's it's not that simple holding the tongue is profoundly powerful the bible says we want to think that my answer is always profoundly powerful holding the tongue and studying the scriptures until the scriptures come out of your mouth. Not what you think, but what they say. Um, again, would be my kind of like, take a couple months and see if you can only quote scripture and no one knows it. <laughs> you know, And then just be kind of, when they ask, say, we well, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting. I'm repenting. I've realized that I have a spirit of rage that I, I, when I talk about certain things, it just happens and I can't control that. So I think it's better for me to practice my religion right now than to try to tell you about it. Wow. Man, that, might, that might really shock somebody. You know? <laughs> so, so you see what I'm saying there? Um, but you also have to give them up for dead. You got to give them over to Satan so they learn how, learn how to repent. You don't get to say, well, they're still saved because of baptism. They're still baptized. Do they believe? I don't know. What's their fruit? Well, it's a mix, ain't it? And maybe not. I mean, from what you wrote, it wasn't a mix. I don't know their lives. That's why I can't speak so specifically. From what you wrote, it's not a mix. Um, and I'm terrified now. Now, now I, do we say all oh, this? No, a husband watches the show. Hey, buddy. <laughs> I want to be your friend, not your enemy. Um, but it seems like if you have any clue who you are, that there's a conversation that needs to happen. And that conversation involves repentance from both parties. Uh, because whoever you've been, however wrong she might be, um, you let her to that. You let her to that. Yeah, you don't ever get to look at your wife, guys, and say she did that. I mean, I heard a story once about a guy who was married, happily married, got in a car accident. She had brain damage, and she divorced him after three months. Okay, guys, that one's not your fault. Well, maybe you could have swerved. I don't know, right? God's in charge. At the same time, whenever something goes wrong on your watch, under your authority, it's your sin. It's your missing of the mark. Even if you didn't do, I didn't cause it. Therefore, who cares if you caused it? Is it in your world? It's your problem then, right? So if you don't like where your wife is, it's because of you, not because of her. And moms, if you don't like where your kids are, it's because of you, not because of them. And if we all take that position first in our marriages, we end up, well, repenting, talking to each other, walking forward. If we all want to justify how it wasn't our fault, if we all want to say how it's okay for me to be this way because well, we're just going to keep being in the same roller coaster we've been on. Uh, screens and addiction to the telos vision. When I say TV, I mean telos vision, end-to-end -end vision. But the word telos really means, like in Greek, the end of all things. And it is fascinating to me that a single invention that has made... What once was just silent wood and stone into speaking wood and stone, a single invention has so powerfully changed the countenance, character, and spirit of an entire globe that before its invention was Christendom. Um, that's worth pondering for a couple afternoons. <laughs> it really is. I mean, I don't think we're in the little season of Satan. I don't. I think we've got a thousand years left, and that's why she moved to Rockford to help me build a cathedral. But... We're definitely in a little season of Satan within this civilization as it spirals into the gutter with its lack of ability to talk clearly. And so if you find yourself in a family where you are jumbled, confused, struggling, your only solution, your only solution is that 
Christianity is your religion. So practice it again. You haven't been. We haven't been. We have been forgetting our first love, straight up. And uh, I used to wonder what that meant. Now I know. I know. Because I know what I did. No. Got something? There's a lot there still. I, didn't, I don't know if we touched on everything. Yeah, I, I do have a few things just Please, as you've go. been speaking. Yeah. You were um, admonishing Christian girls and how to find a husband that they can submit to or have be their head. And a thought that came to my mind is a question that is good to continue to ask yourself as you are looking for and praying for this man. Hmm. Can I follow him? Yeah, that is a good question. Can I unite with our sister in Christ, Ruth, who said hmm. to her, her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go, mm. and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Mm. That's right. That's right. So this is, again, advice for those of you who are looking. looking. Guys, look for a wife who likes that Bible verse. Really. Um, because, I mean, it is. You want to you wanna avoid divorce. Believe that Bible verse as a woman. Because that she had... She really didn't have legal right to leave. She was married into the family. She'd left her family. She's gone. But Naomi tries to kick her out. And she effectively says, no, this is my family now because of marriage. Because marriage is that real. Even death did not free her from it. We know from Paul, death does free you from marriage in terms of the legal contract of it. So she could have gone home. And Naomi does say that. And yet at the same time, what she say at the end? Why does she not want to go back to the Moabites? There's no Christianity in the Moabites. <laughs> She wants to go back to where the ark is. She's so faithful. She's so faithful. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And then um, as you were talking about grown men in a home, I thought of the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From That's Venus. That's helpful. That is a secular book, but it is so eye-opening to both, I think, men and women mm -hmm. about the opposite sex Correct. and how, how they function and um, operate. <laughs> But it's also, as a woman reading it about myself, it was eye-opening to me to see, oh, those fits of rage that I have, that's what's behind it. This is It's not that I'm abnormal or that I'm unique in some weird way. No, it's this is the plight, the sin of woman, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's part of who I am, and I can thank God for it, even as I try to you know, st step on top of it and yeah. conquer it, you know, yeah. put it behind me. Praise God prayer. for the storm while you're in it. Right. Yeah. So there's that one. And then wild things is mm -hmm. more of a Christian look at raising and nurturing boys. But it also talks about the psychology of a boy as he goes from your arms to 25. And the cool thing about that is that it's not that he goes from phase to phase to phase. Um, and drops his characteristics from the phase previous, but it builds one on mm -hmm. top of the mm -hmm. other. And so you see what he psychologically is manifesting as a four-year-old. You see it all the way until he's a 25-year-old, and it's just going to be couched differently. Mm -hmm. So that four-year-old little boy is still in your adult son. 
Um, and so I found that to be a very helpful, I've, I'm finding it as I read through it currently, to be a very helpful book as I engage in in relationships with men of all ages in it's, my life. It's definitely got to be more helpful than all you have is that everyone calls it the terrible twos. Absolutely. That's all you got. <laughs> That's all I grew up in. You know, we're just uh, terrible twos apparently. Yeah. I was bad at then. I don't know, you know. And so, yeah, it's got to be more helpful than that to um, to see that there are there are seasons to the development of a human and that observing that naturally can help you see where human... I mean, it's amazing education didn't figure this out, except that they kind of did. And they went on a different track. They went on a factory-driven track. And, and now, thankfully, there's people doing research on human development still. Besides the AMA and their recommendations that there are no such things in boys or girls anymore and all that, mm. blah, 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 blah. Breaks my heart. But that book, Weird. Wild Things, is from a Christian perspective. And I believe the author, one of the authors, it's written by two psychologists. One of the authors is David Thomas. Um, and then the last thought that I had was you had asked me initially about taking on um, my husband's role or when I see somebody lacking. Right. right. When a man isn't doing his job, do you step and do it for him? And it reminds me that um, we as women, we don't want, I mean, that's part of the fall. It's part of the curse that we get. Mm-hmm. Um, our desire will be for our husband and Correct. he will rule over us. And it's our desire for his role, I believe, mm-hmm. is how you've explained it. And um it shows when we when we take on his responsibility it shows that sin yeah. and so if we know what we're struggling with we know now what we can repent of and what we can quietly lay down at the foot of the cross yeah. and say lord i can't do this because i'm not supposed to but you can yeah yeah that's right that's right it's, it's ultimately not your job to deal with the thorns and the sweat it's your job to deal with your children dealing with the thorns in the sweat and there's lots there and then the man's supposed to stop the thorns in the sweat that are getting to you as much as he can uh so that again those that next generation uh has the space to to grow and mature without just being you know choked to death yeah um but it does mean uh embracing genesis 3 and that's where this is it is really amazing to me how genesis 3 details everything that is wrong with feminism if we're going to call it that it details the thing we've been taught to believe backwards um as a society it tells you what all the problems are that we currently face and that's where it's like this isn't just us now this isn't just some end of the world scenario this is human sin one more time doing what it always does just with a different spin and yeah the man doesn't want his curse you you got a planet you don't want to live on. And if you can have a slave do it for you, you will because that's how evil you are. And so you'll marry this sister and you'll make her your slave. Huh? And and that's what we do. Ladies, you're you don't think you're a slave, you know? Uh you think you've you've become an equal. Yeah, because now you're going to go and do all the stuff that he can do. And so he he might still go, you know? He might still be aggressive. Well, you're seeing that one generation and it kind of flips pretty fast on it now. And why would he go out when he can stay at home? And this this is the crazy. So ladies, ladies, you have the vocation where you get to work at home. Yeah, you know how many people want to work at home? I'd love to work from home. I don't have to drive. I don't have to worry about all those people that I don't, you know, that that guy across the cubicle who's always like my bosses. He doesn't even know what he's doing. You just work at home. I mean, and then you've been convinced that like that's the worst thing in the world, right? Like, like you work at home. Like that's how disgusting. It's like, 
You see how backwards that sounds? If you put it like in the man's world, the man's like, I work at home. <laughs> and, and so here it is created for you. And you look at the man's curse where he's like, I don't want to go do that. You, you want to go do that? Okay, cool. I'll stay home. And then what happens again, though? Then you have to, you have to outsource your womb, basically. Yeah. Um, you can't be what naturally you would do with those little balls of flesh that you birth out. What a thing. I'm trying to say, ladies, how you have a good in creation and that as redeemed people, you have every right to just embrace that and more or less tell your husband that you must obey God rather than men. I'm not quite saying, you know, just put your foot in the ground, but like, like, hey, husband, I love the Bible. And it says that I am to be busy at home. And if I continue in this path, I feel I won't be able to do that. And it's hard on my conscience and it's not so good for us. And we both have seen this. And so why don't we work toward an understanding of like the home is valuable? And a place to be preserved, and it's like worthy of a full-time person, you know. Um, eh, very counter to the present again. Mm-hmm. My wife is typing. Okay. How many questions we got left? Um, so we're kind of out of time, I think. Four. Right? Four. Yes, we're not going to yeah, give her all four. Five let's, minutes. Let's do at least one more. Really but... fast. Super speed. Good luck. <laughs> Brian, um, Brian had that idea like years ago on WeTV. He's like, you should just do like a bunch of questions really fast, and so we'd line them up. Five questions to do in 10, and I go for 35 minutes. I just, it's just, not me, not me. Go ahead. <laughs> Could you explain what Lord, capital Lord, means and why you, you say we ought to insert Jesus Christ in when we see it? You were right in saying <laughs> that it will rock your world once you do, specifically in the Psalms. Yes, it will. Smiley face. Yes, it will. I just need some explanation because I originally thought that Lord was referring to the whole Trinity. Thanks, Rev Fisk. Brooke. So what I want you to do is do a, do a word search in your Bible for this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Look for that phrase, Jesus is Lord. And then realize that's like the main point of the entire New Testament. And that point is, so if Jesus is Lord, then the New Testament, which has the word Lord in Greek, um, uh, Kyrie, wherever you have the name Yahweh, pronounced Adonai, Lord, by the Jews, but in Hebrew, Yahweh, his proper name spoken to Moses and called upon from the time of his Enoch, I think, or maybe it's Noah. Um, this Yahweh is translated as Lord throughout all the Septuagint, the Greek New Testament, which is, or Old Testament, Old Testament, which is what most of the people in the area that became Christianity would know and have access to. And here come these apostles saying, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that guy. Jesus is that guy. It's not just that Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. It's also that Yahweh is Lord and Jesus is Lord. So the fact that we just say Lord over and over again as this sort of like non-personified Trinity, I mean, the Trinity is not something we can understand. You can pray to the whole Trinity, but the Trinity is not like the Voltron version of God, okay? Where like, Jesus isn't Lord without the Trinity. And the Athanasian Creed is pretty clear, right? That, you know, The Father is Lord, the Spirit is Lord. The Son is Lord, but there are not three Lords. There's one Lord, right? So, so there's the creedal thing. But, but the whole premise of the gospel is that Jesus is the Old Testament God in the flesh who has been killed and is not dead because he made this creation and wants to redeem it and has done so in his flesh as a man to be your king. Okay, Jesus is Lord. So go to the Old Testament and realize Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Oh my goodness, this book's about Jesus. And it all starts to make sense, doesn't it? You found it in the Psalms. You're like, what's going on? This is, this is like I'm praying like I've never prayed before. And it all makes sense. And it seems to answer the trials of my age. All I had to know was that God's Jesus. Jesus is God. Why don't we know Jesus is God? 
Yeah, we do as a theory, as a theory. But devotionally, yeah, it's fascinating. We've been praying to an unnamed God for quite a while, huh? Kind of weird, weird, weird. I mean, I think there was a time when people could say Lord and it always meant Jesus in English. I think there was a time. Here's a fun one. So the, the Yahweh, again, the letters, four letters, the, tetra, the tetramorph, 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 is some fancy word for four letters in Hebrew because we don't really know how to pronounce it. It can come across as Yahweh. It can come across as Adonai, not Adonai, as uh, Jehovah. Jehovah is because the vowels of Adonai, which means Lord, were transposed over Yahweh. So you wouldn't have to say Yahweh because the Jews are too pious to say the name that all the Psalter says, say the name, call him his name, but we don't. We'll say something else instead. Weird, right? But they replace it with the word Lord, Adonai. There's another word for Lord, very common in the Old Testament. Sometimes even talks about like kings that are Christians. And and, uh, I'm not sure if it references God ever as a verb. But the point is that Baal as a word means Lord. The Lord, Baal. The Lord, Adonai. The Lord, whoever. Okay? So... If there was a time in English when whenever we said the word Lord, because we lived in America where the King James Bible was like the only thing that English was, and so Lord only referenced Jesus, well, then the word Lord meant Jesus. But now we live in a time where the word Lord means a million different things. And I'm going to suggest to you that a lot of times it means Baal. It kind of does, at least in your own mind. If you, if you don't think it's Jesus, who is it? Yeah. And Baal just means Lord. It's whoever your master is. I mean, granted, you know, mammon is often the Lord as much as, say, the false teaching at your church. But again... To have a lord, to have a master, to have a king. And there is only one given among men by whom we may be saved. His name's Jesus, not Father and not Spirit. They didn't die on the cross. He did. They don't intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. He does, right? He is the immediate revelation of the Trinity. You are not going to see the Father. You are not going to see the Spirit. You see the Father in Jesus, and the Spirit enters to you through the words of Jesus to be in you, not to see yourself, but to see Jesus, right? To see the king, to be a part of that fellowship. Uh, so uh, I just kind of ran out of steam on the end of that there, but um, that's why, right? The name is the name. Oh, there's one more. The name is the name Jesus. So Yahweh, this tetra omicron. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, tet- it, no, it, tetragrammaton. That's it. Tetragrammaton. So grammar, grammar. Yeah, so writing, um, for writing, four letters. The Tetragrammaton, thank you, whoever that was. Um, after it is revealed to Moses and or Enoch and or whoever it was in early Genesis where they start calling him the name of Yahweh, um, it ends up being so important to them that they begin attaching it to people's names. So they start naming their kids things like Yahweh strengthens or Yahweh gives or praise be to Yahweh. Right, and actually, no one did that. Hallelujah, be praised be Yahweh. So, uh, but the, that Yah on the end of Hallelujah is the name Yahweh. Okay, so this name works its way into most of the Hebrew Hebrew names, along with it's either Yahweh or it's El El. So God strengthens Ezekiel, right? Uh, the El on the end there is God, but that could be Ezekiah and then be Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthens hmm. Jeremiah, right? Isaiah. It's it's all in there. Um, so well, Jesus' name is Joshua. Oh. So he's named one of those guys from the Old Testament who has the name Yahweh built into it. And wouldn't you know, it's not just strengthened. It's not just sees. It's actually saves. Joshua. Yahweh saves. So whenever you say the name Jesus, you're saying the Lord. The actual one in, in like English, right? The, the, the Lord. You're saying the Lord saves. 
Only it's Yahweh, the Lord, who saves, and it's also Jesus when you say Jesus. So when you say Jesus Christ, you actually get all of it. It's just like from the full perspective, right? As opposed to like from a shadow, dimly looking at it. Oh my goodness, the veil is removed and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Did I get excited? I think I got yeah, excited about that. That's good. That's a good one. <laughs> the viewers were excited about it too. So God. Good. Let's do one more. Um, well, we have a long one and a short one. So let me get the, the short one. Yeah. Sounds good. Alex says, I am a Lutheran seminarian, A-A-L-C. My brother passed away by suicide in June of this year. And the shadow has overrun many members of my family, most of whom are nominal Christians, but functional non-believers. I'm imperfectly, I imperfectly preach the gospel to those who are willing to listen, trusting that the word will do its work. And I pray for the family. Do you have any advice for our family or for when the shadow grips me, grips at me too? My hope for the resurrection by God's grace remains alive but I have some dark days on occasion. Your prayers are greatly appreciated. God bless you, your family, and congregation. Thanks. So when the shadow grips you is where I want to start here. Um, torment, right? Whatever you want that to mean for you. Um, your demons. Whatever you want that to mean for you. If it's just psychology, that's fine. It's going to be the same answer. Office arte hutos gar prepon. Este hemin sai panta diakastune. Let go now, for it is beautiful for us to fulfill all righteousness, or permitted to be so now in order to fulfill all righteousness. First words of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me suggest to you that when you are under torment, the most valuable thing you can do is go to the start of your New Testament and start reading the red letters. Read them out loud. Memorize them if you can. If you get to the end of the Beatitudes, feel free to move on to the Psalms because you might not be in a place where Jesus excoriating the Pharisees on their legalism is going to help your conscience at that moment. But everything up to that point, I'm convinced is there to be a liturgy of exorcism of sorts. It's speaking to the devil almost the entire time. And you can tell by, by looking at it. The only part is that he can't believe, right? So it's speaking to you under the devil. Well, hey, there, there you go. So go to that. Let go now. It is beautiful for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness by allowing you to be tormented and remember that his words are the antidote to your torment. Let those red letters be something you memorize. Learn to say it out loud to yourself, however you want to say it. Permit it to be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. Let go now, which is a very good translation. Let go now. It is beautiful for us to fulfill all righteousness. Or you can go with the Greek. It's kind of fun, right? Um, Now I'm going to lose the first word. Office arte hutos gar prepon. Uh, there we go. So, so that's my advice is to believe that, uh, the early church understood a lot of things we don't and didn't write a manual for how to understand demons. They wrote a manual for how to pray against demons. And they, they knew very well that these come out by prayer rather than by some sort of magical casting. And so whenever you find yourself under assault, uh, go to the clarity of those first seven statements of Jesus. And by the way, so once you get to the end of the Beatitudes, if the Beatitudes are a whole statement, you've got seven statements of Jesus. Jesus, Jump from there back into, again, the Psalms 12, 28, 149, 
Remember, the enemies are the demons. Remember, the enemy is suicide. Suicide is a spirit or an anti-spirit. It is an idea. It is a myth. It is a lie. So speak against it as the venom of the enemy. Pray with the confidence that it's actually a spirit. Personify it as much as you need to. And then realize that that torment, which is in your mind and in the room, cannot stand against the, uh, the, the solidarity of the scriptures. Scriptures which the more you know them, the more they become the rut in your mind that becomes easy to fall into. The first time you pick up your sword to fight back, it's not easy. You might cut off your own face if you're not careful. But Sons of Solomon, we got you covered. Again, sonsofsolomon.net helps a training path for this, right? Helps get you on that path. So you have some uh, clockwork word of God devotion in your life. But from there again, when you're actually going to fight, I mean, honestly, why am I doing this? Why am I learning these, these words, right? Why do I want to memorize them? Because I want to be prepared for whatever comes my way. And I want to know that no matter what form Satan decides to take in my life today, whether it's my own psychology or some big monster in the street, I can stand there and I can speak the words of Jesus that he spoke to Satan. And if he wants to kill me, that's fine. But if not, he's going to flee. (laughs) He's going to flee eventually. The torment is the desire not to read the Bible. The antidote is to say, a big middle finger to the torment. I'm going to read the Bible even though I don't feel like it. Take that, devil. Ha! Right? And then just keep doing it. Keep doing it. And find those psalms you can go back to. Don't, don't try to read something new every time. Become familiar. Right? Let, the, let church be where new stuff happens. Become familiar, not with torment. Ha <laughs> ha! Don't have a familiar tormentor. Be familiar with the antidote. Be familiar with the words of true and everlasting power that are the living word of God. So, well, my wife's on her screen on her phone now. I know. I, I was looking her. up. I caught her. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I was looking up the LCMS Lutheran Church in Anchorage that I went oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, good for you. <laughs> and the reason I wanted, I wanted to get the name yeah, of it. Yeah, Because in case you threw the question at me, like you kind of do. Go for it. Do. There it is. I, I just wanted to, it, it remind, the question reminded me of when I encountered suicide on not a personal to me level, but just personal as in I was walking through it with the congregation in a, in their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I visited a congregation in Anchorage and honestly, I don't know what the name of the congregation is because I got cut off on my search. I I'm pretty sure they have Zion. a matin service though. So. They had, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, so if they, they have matins, it's that one. Matins with um, incense and then they had a time of fellowship between the services and then their actual divine service followed by Sunday school. And it was, uh, I happened to visit on a Sunday following um, the suicide mm-hmm. of one of their young members. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. And the pastor then took the congregation during Bible study through what Luther t- says about suicide. Mm. And I appreciated his words quite a bit because he talks about how it's not like any, I mean, it's not any different than any other sin that the devil tempts us with. The problem is that in that moment of temptation, you've got your final moment. And um, Luther's sense of grace in that time is beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we don't know last moments in hearts. And we do know Christians can be tormented. And that's actually Luther's words about it. Suicide is those whom the devil has stolen from us. 
But what does that ultimately mean on the last day? This is where we need to let God be God. Um, but to have grace in the moment, to see that the one who has been driven to such self-hate is out of their mind, out of their heart. Uh, they're, they're being driven. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as one who has had my ins and outs with that spirit, um, come and attempt talk more than tempt. Let me say this. There's two types of suicidal ideation. This is very, very important. Listen carefully. There is suicidal ideation, which is fantastic. That is, oh, I should just, and then, then the world would, blah, blah. And that's like 99% of us. And if you have had those thoughts, feel good about it. Because honestly, it just means you're in a bad mood. And frankly, you're probably not going to kill yourself. And then there's the people that are planning it. Call a friend. That's a different thing. So, but those of you who've had those ideation thoughts, I mean, it, it made my conscience feel so much better when I realized that I could, in fact, contemplate suicide as a despairing moment and not actually be suicidal. Well, that's helpful. It was just a thought. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. As opposed to like this permanent definition of I wrestle with suicidal thoughts. Like, no, no. But if you're at a place where you're planning, I was never planning it. It's more like I'm mad and I'm driving like, well, if I just did this, it'd all be over. I mean, that's stupid is what that is. But that's, again, suicidal ideation. Um, and many people experience this and we are healthy enough to tell that it's a bad idea. Then there are those whom the devil steals from us, right? Who aren't just mad, uh, aren't just sad, but really believe they're so alone for such a time that they find a way to be alone and plan a death, right? And... The people who are in those positions, um, yeah, grace is what they've needed all along. That's just it. That's where like, you get mad at them. And it's like, huh, this is going to be more of what they're used to. It's why they're killing themselves. It's because they just feel everyone hates them. Yeah. So, And that's why you have suicidal ideation at all, is you're in a moment of powerlessness. You think everyone hates you. The thing is, is it true or not? <laughs> and the problem is that it's almost never true. It's never true. Jesus loves you. And it's never true. Even your family who hates you and abuses you loves you in a wicked, twisted way. And there are people who Jesus puts in the church who will love you in a good way. Although there's also liars and perverts there as well. Oh, what a world to walk in. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, I know this too. I've said this before and I'll say it again. How do I know mine's just suicidal ideation? I mean, I can tell you how I know. Because I have a bit of theology that, that is so true that it cannot break. And that is I know this. I don't know how bad, no matter how bad my pain is. That I might think, oh, I'll just burn, end it all. No matter how bad my pain is, I know that that wouldn't end it all. I might be on the day of resurrection rejoicing and yet also repentantly mad about what I just did. Or I might not be, and I don't know. So I know that's a real threat, but more than any of that, I know that whatever pain I think I'm in right now, it will be multiplied by seven, six, excuse me, and then some. It'll be multiplied by six and then some because it won't just be mine, then it'll be all of theirs. And for that reason alone, it's just an idea. No other human being is worth that much pain. If you're drinking a lot, it might be hard to see that. Just for the record. But no other being is worth, human being is worth that much pain. If you can see another human being, it doesn't even matter if, if they love you. It doesn't even matter. Just realize, look at that person who, who hates you and realize that their hate is going to be turned into excruciating pain. Don't do that to people. Arm yourself with that. I, mean, I've, I found it incredibly valuable. <laughs> Why would I ever? 
ever hurt people like that. And as a Christian, I know that God has promised that's not the, the future. Right? So believe in the promises. Fight the lies. Suicide's a story. It's just one more story, and it's a story with a false ending. It's a lie. It's a lie. All right. Mad Christianity. If you signed up for the newsletter, you should. If you found the Mad Christian Discord, you've got to search for Us the Chill on your Discord app. It's a pretty awesome place. You can also send contact through revfist.com slash contact. Say, please help me find the Discord. I don't understand. We'll find a way to do that. You can send questions and comments for the show uh, through that as well. Redfist.com slash contact. You can also address questions to Meredith now since she's here as our resident reader of psychological, emotional, and spiritual things on the feminine spectrum. Um <laughs> Uh, I learned so much from you, friend. I'm so glad you are a reader. Uh, and uh, let's see. Have I forgotten to promote anything? Pa- Patreon. Patreon's how this whole thing functions and works. The way that Brief History of Power, Mad Christianity, yada, yada, gets catalyzed and moved forward by me uh, is that you find patreon.com slash redfisk. You say, we'd like to support that show, Saturday Morning Chill. Uh, we subscribe to it, and a little bit comes out of your bank account every every month and helps us continue to build here uh, in Rockford. Would you like to visit Rockford? Would you like to move to Rockford? Are you looking for a place for an actual Christian community that wants to preserve itself as a Christian community in the white noise zeitgeist of the present age? I mean, yeah, you should, you should really come and visit. And you say, well, it's in Illinois. And I say, yeah, you should come and visit because not all Illinois is Illinois. I mean, there's different places. And so uh, in any way, if you're looking for that, um, consider again joining the Mad Christian Discord for that kind of conversation with like-minded people. Build a commune where you are. Build an arc where you are. Um, and again, Rockford's a good place to come and check out. If you're tired of being in a city with no hope, uh, find a country uh, where there's a city close by that needs some hope, but where there's, again, people that want to well, village up a little bit, I think. It'd be yeah, a word. city on a hill. Village up. So, uh... That's it. That's it from my end and your end. And I see now we're back at this place where if it was just me, I'd like end. Yeah, do your thing. Do your I don't, I don't have a I don't have a natural like uh, segue, <laughs> a professional segue to the ending of this show. Um, so I cut you off. I, I well, I say something right every week, and I'm just trying to get the start of this thing that I say every week. You know, once upon a time I had a lot of cards, so I'd remember it. It's it's along the lines of how. Um, well, I would normally be talking about everything, and I would dovetail it into how we're not supposed to wallow in the muck. Wallow in the muck. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, <sighs> <laughs> complete collapse. <laughs> it's a complete and utter crash. I'll tell you what. I, I'm really thankful that all of you out there think that the stuff we say is helpful because, um, well, it's the word of God, but it's affirming to not be alone in this fight. It's affirming to not be the only place trying to build an ark. It's affirming to be not the only family that realizes that the white noise and the stream are about to flow over us and to remember that Jesus Christ is on our side, uh, that the Lord is our shepherd, and that we are going to stand firm in this present evil age rather than wallow among the muck with those who have no hope. So you go ahead, shout an hallelujah today, and rock on. Was that worth a dollar? 
Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please? 